We have an action-packed chapter in front of us this morning. It's a uh, it's an important juncture in our study. And if you're taking notes, uh, these aren't fill-in-the-blanks, but you might want to jot these down. We are at an important spot in the book of Revelation this morning. First of all, because we are now at the midpoint in our study of Revelation. We have 11 chapters behind us, and we have 11 chapters ahead. We're right here in the middle. How many of you have been here for the half so far? Anyone just been here? Yeah, good job. And then not only are we at the midpoint in our study, uh, secondly, here at chapter 12 signals the beginning of the final three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. So right in the half, and that last half uh, being called sometimes the Great Tribulation, that final three and a half years. Uh, Another reason it's important that we're in chapter 12 today is because uh, we become familiar beginning today with three characters in the drama of the last half of the tribulation. And uh, you would call them the unholy trinity. So we'll see this unholy trinity uh, beginning today as well as in chapter 13 next Sunday. So we will see Satan, who we're going to see as the dragon, also called the serpent of old, the devil, and the, the adversary of us as believers. And then also in that unholy trinity, we will see the Antichrist, also called the beast. We'll get into that next week. The world leader for a while in the end times, this false Messiah. And then the third part of that unholy trinity is the false prophet who imitates the role of the Holy Spirit, but a counterfeit who supports the role of the Antichrist during this last half of the tribulation and and his campaign during the tribulation period. This false prophet kind of going around going, believe him, believe him, believe him, believe the Antichrist. And so, you know, God is the great originator and creator, right? And it is Satan who is always the imitator and impersonator of things. So the Holy Trinity we know as God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Satan has an unholy trinity, being Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. We will begin to see that uh, unfold here. Well, chapter 12 presents us with an overview of Satan's hatred of God and his people. So this chapter isn't chronological. In fact, it jumps around quite a bit. We'll go back thousands of years, and then we'll jump forward a couple thousand years, and then we'll go forward from there a couple thousand years. So uh, just keep that in mind as we go through here. John has, in chapter 12 here, a threefold vision about Satan, the first person in the unholy trinity. And before we jump into all the aspects of that vision, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for this day and the opportunity to be in your house. And God, we are here because of you and you alone. And so uh, as we continue to worship you by the hearing of your word, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. God, draw us closer to you. Lord, help us realize some things about our world and how you operate and what you allow to happen. God, I pray that uh, individually as well we would think on these things. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray this morning. Amen. John's first observation in chapter 12, and this is number one in your notes, is Satan's fall. Satan's fall. And we find this in verses 
1 through 6. Let's read there now. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 says this, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child. Capital C on that child there you'll notice in your scriptures. As soon as it was born, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And we'll stop right there. So this chapter opens up with two signs in heaven. You want to jot these down. First of all, there's this woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and a garland of 12 stars. Well, this is obviously symbolic. And there's been a lot guessed on you know who this could be or what this could be. Uh, but again, Comparing Scripture with Scripture, we find out who this woman represents. And I'll just tell you this so you can jot it right into your notes. This represents Israel. And we know this because it is in Genesis chapter 37, all the way back in the very beginning of the Bible there, you have a story of a young man named Joseph. And to make a really long story short, and you can look, at it, look it up later, he has a dream about his family in which his father is the sun and his mom is the moon and his, his brothers are the 12 stars. And in this dream, he, uh, he dreams that they'll one day bow down before him. And this family, represented by the sun, moon, and the stars, way back in Genesis chapter 37, is, is the descendants or would become the 12 tribes of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And so this is connecting us in Genesis chapter 37 all the way back to Israel. And so the woman here in Revelation chapter 12 represents Israel. And Jesus, we know know that a, a child is born, and we'll get to that in a moment, but Jesus was born a Jew and was from the tribe of Judah as well. And so it's it's easy to see that. In verse number two, Look there, it says, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. The woman is going to give birth to a child, and that is Christ. Clearly, this is referring to Jesus, as, as we read down in verse number 5, mentions he'll rule all nations, and that uh, he would also be caught up to God in his throne there. So this child is Jesus. And the fact that the woman, in verse number 2, is crying out in intense pain reminds us of the fact that Israel was under intense opposition courtesy of the Roman Empire of that day. And they were crying out for delivery. They were crying out for their Messiah to come and to deliver them according to the Old Testament prophecies that, that they knew and that they had read. So they were, they were waiting on their deliverer to come. They were waiting on Messiah to come. Look at verse number 3. It says another sign appeared in heaven. We read that one. And it says there a, a fiery red dragon Again, no guesswork here because as we proceed in this passage, the dragon is clearly identified as Satan, the devil, the serpent of old. Verse 9, we, we see that. It says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil. So again, we see that comparing Scripture with Scripture, who this fiery red dragon is. 
It goes on to say in verse number 3, it talks about some seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on those seven heads and the horns. We are going to encounter that next week as well as in chapter 17. So we'll go into more detail with that at that, at that time. But suffice that to say, and you can jot this down in your notes if you would like, they symbolize world history kingdoms and kings of the last days. Those seven heads and the ten horns and the crowns we see there. Verse number four, the text says and, and takes us way back. Here's where you got to hang on to your seat a little bit this morning. Way back to the days before the Garden of Eden and makes reference to the original fall of Satan. John writes here that uh, in verse number four that a third of the stars of heaven fell to the earth with Satan at that time. And the stars here mean angels. And we know this because as we read verses 7 through 9, stars are still being talked about as angels, specifically ones that followed Satan. Fallen angels, or as we refer to them today, as demons. You see, originally, God created angels, holy angels. And the Bible tells us there's an innumerable amount of angels. They can't even be numbered. And God created them all to be holy, but one of them, Satan, known back then as Lucifer, you know that, that, that name, Lucifer, uh, by the way, on a side note, is the Latin word for the planet Venus, and he rebelled, and he said, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend to the throne. He had this pride going here. I, I, and he wanted all of creation and all of the other angels to worship him. You can read more about that in Isaiah chapter 14. gives that account as well as Ezekiel chapter 28. Some other details there. But John, in our text this morning, is telling us here that when Satan was was cast out of heaven by God because of his sin of pride. He took one-third of the angels with him. And now they are fallen angels or demons. And why they followed Satan and left the Lord is beyond me. But we read that here. We also read in, in verse 4 here that Satan is cast out of heaven. Satan is cast out of heaven. is no longer his dwelling place. Now, here's an interesting thing. Just remember this. Satan can still approach heaven. It's not his dwelling place, but he can approach heaven. Places like the book of Job, we read how Satan can still move between the earth and heaven and go back and forth and stand in heaven and accuse believers and make accusations against us. So it, heaven is no longer Satan's dwelling place, but still he has access to heaven but that's even going to change here in a moment in the chapter before us this morning. Middle of verse 4, look what it says there. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Um, we now fast forward from the fall of Satan right in the middle of verse 4. We fast forward way in time uh, before, uh, after this fall of Satan to the birth of Christ, the actual birth of Christ here. Satan is called a dragon. And this dragon, verse 4 tells us, stood before the woman, which represents, yep, I heard someone say it, Israel, ready to devour and destroy her child, the Christ child. And uh, we read about this in the Gospel of Matthew. Satan used King Herod in those times to try to kill Jesus. 
And Herod was not successful in killing the baby Jesus, but he was successful at, at killing the, uh, the male children in Bethlehem at that time. And we read about this in the Gospel of Matthew here. And in verse 5, it says that she bore a male child. So Israel gives birth to the male child, Jesus. And it, it's not in the too distant future that Jesus will rule the nations. And that speaks there in verse 5 of the millennial kingdom. And we will get to that in great detail as we hit Revelation chapter 20. The end of verse 5 there, there's a reference about being caught up to God. You see that there? That is a reference to Jesus ascending back to heaven after His death, burial, and resurrection. Symbolic of the fact that redemption was completed. As Jesus said on the cross... It is finished. And He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we come to an interesting verse here in verse number 6 where we fast forward from the ascension of Christ another 2,000 plus years. So read verse 6 there. It says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness. And the woman is who? Israel. Where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So we went back some 6,000 years. Uh, we, we fast forwarded then to the birth of Christ and then to the ascension of Christ. And the, here's another period where we fast forward again into the tribulation uh, period, some 2,000 plus years. And we read that in verse 6, the woman who represents Israel will flee into the wilderness and a place will be prepared by God where the Lord <clears throat> will protect her and watch over for her for 1,260 days. And if you take that in 30-day months, that comes out to exactly three and a half years. This is now referring to this last or second half of the seven-year tribulation. Well, Jesus talked about this persecution in Matthew 24. You don't need to turn there, but he's talking about the last days and giving a, giving a time frame and some things that were going to happen in the last days, in this tribulation. And he was talking about the persecution of the Jewish people. And in Matthew chapter 24, uh, Jesus said, Then let those who are, who are in Judea, or that's Judah, that's the southern part of Israel, flee to the mountains. And he's talking about how this would happen. That, that passage in Matthew 24 goes right in line in tandem with Revelation 12, where we're at today. Well, there is a lot of speculation about where will the Jews flee as all hell literally breaks loose here on earth. Where exactly will they go? You know, where will it be? Bible scholars have suggested that the, there is a place called Petra uh, in the country of Jordan where they will flee to. And so as students of the Word of God, we then ask, do you have any scripture to back up this theory or suggestion? And the answer is yes, we do. It's in Daniel chapter 11 where, uh, and by the way, Daniel is basically the revelation of the Old Testament. And they both work together. And in Daniel 11, in the latter half, it is talking about these end times here. And Daniel is describing the campaign of the Antichrist during this time. And uh, in that second half, listen to what Daniel writes about uh, speaking of the Antichrist and this persecution. He writes this, He shall also enter into the glorious land, and in Scripture, that's Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown. He's talking about being overthrown by the Antichrist. And it goes on to say, but these shall escape from his hand, from the Antichrist's hand. Edom, 
Moab and the prominent people of Ammon. They will escape from that. That area will escape from the hand of the Antichrist. And so um, the Antichrist, he will have his headquarters in the Middle East, take hold of the glorious land, Israel, and other countries except for Edom, Moab, and Ammon. I want to show you this map right here this morning. We'll put our map up. And you see here Ammon and Moab and Edom on, on this map of the Middle East. Israel is right over here. And so you've got these areas right here that will escape from the hand of the Antichrist. Now you say, well, what is, what is that in modern day? Let's put up our modern day map now. And you see right over here, you've got Israel on the left. And then right over here, you've got Jordan, the country of Jordan. And right here inside, just across the border of Israel, you have what is known as Petra right there. It's a beautiful thing. They, there is, that is the area known as Petra right there. You could go there today. You can visit it uh, right in the country of Jordan. Um, the place called Petra very well may be the place where the Jews go. Jordan uh, is the neighbor to Israel there to the east, sort of what Kansas is to Colorado on the eastern border, right up against it. And in Matthew 24, Jesus said that the Jews would flee Judea and they would flee into, into the mountains. And that helps us narrow it down a bit on where they would go. In Israel, you wouldn't go north because that's where the forests are. And you, you wouldn't go west because you'd get wet into the Mediterranean. And you, if you went south, it'd really be more desert and you would go down into Egypt. And uh, you would go. And also, this is interesting, in Scripture, a lot of times when wilderness is mentioned, it's to the east. And so the place where the wilderness here mentioned uh, in Scripture, right across... Uh, south of the Dead Sea, across the border, into the wilderness, you would be in the area of Petra. You would certainly be in the country of Jordan. Uh, I want to show you some pictures of Petra. Let's put the first one up here. Here is the pathway about a mile long into Petra. It's kind of a canyon, flat pathway, only, only path in and out of Petra. So in spots about three feet wide. In other spots, about nine, twelve feet wide. And so if the Jews go into Petra, at some point they'll be filing in one by one. Um, here's another picture of, of uh, coming out of that narrow pathway, also called the SIC, S-I-Q, uh, for pathway. And you see a building there as you're coming into Petra. Do you recognize that building? Okay, let's show our next picture here of Petra. Yeah, it's it's made pretty popular in the, uh, in the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade movie where they go into that building, uh, which is known as the Treasury. Let's show our next picture, a little bit better picture of it, of it right there. You see that in the, in the Indiana Jones movie, also in Transformers 2. And uh, they go into there, and then there's all this stuff that happens. In actuality, you go right into that door there, and uh, there's a small rock room, and it ends. There's nothing else in there. It's a dead end. Uh, so there's not really all that stuff that we saw in the movies inside of there. What is interesting, though, is, uh, is right below there, there are some metal grates that the country of Jordan has padlocked up. And as you look down into those metal grates, you can see stairs and, and doorways and, and almost like an underground city uh, starting there. But uh, no one has been uh, past that very beginning. So our next picture, just wanted to show you this here. Uh, all these... 
parts of Petra. There's all these little dwelling places and nooks that can be used throughout time. We're used uh, by different peoples as tombs and dwelling places and, and things like that, but uh, they are empty today. So there's lots of caves and enclosures in Petra. And let's show another picture here. This is an amphitheater where, uh, you know, meetings and you could sit here and, uh, again, all, all kinds of other little nooks and dwelling places. I think in the amphitheater, this is the sound room right there. And this is where they do the lights and the PowerPoint over there. <laughs> it looks kind of like that. But just all kinds of nooks in this place. And then uh, our last picture here, we've got some a view from above. Uh, this is an enormous area. It's not just the, the treasury there. It's a humongous area with all kinds of structures and ruins and places to uh, find dwelling. And, and it's a really fascinating area in the country of Jordan. So we've seen this snapshot in these first several verses of this history of hatred. And we went back in time and then forward in time. And and Satan's hatred of God and God's people. The second part of John's vision is this, Satan's war. Satan's war. And that's found in our next passage of Scripture in verses 7 through 12. Let's read there together. Verse 7 says, And war broke out in heaven... Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. And we'll stop right there. There was that original casting out of heaven, where Satan took a third of the angels with him, that casting out of heaven as his dwelling place. But again, he continued to have access into heaven. But now, in the middle of the tribulation... That is going to come to an end, as we just read. During that time, war between Michael the archangel and the holy angels versus Satan and his demonic angels will break out. The time is coming where Satan will no longer get to even approach heaven and accuse believers. Man, it's going to, there's going to be, God has given permission for that, and there's going to come a time where God says, okay, no more of that. This time is coming where God is going to look at Michael, the archangel, and say, okay, buddy, it's time to take out the trash. You know, and I bet Michael's been looking forward to that for a long, long time. It's been said, you know, what, what will these, uh, this battle take place with? Like, you know, we think sometimes of swords and shields, you know, or will it be blaster pistols and lightsabers? You know, it, it has been said that the demons will hurl deviled eggs at the angels, and that the holy angels will throw angel food cake, of course, back at them. Now, we don't know that. We don't know the details of that. What we do know is that Michael and the angels will prevail because the Scriptures say so. And Satan will be cast out of heaven permanently. 
And as, as we read there uh, through verses 7 through 9, he'll no longer have access into heaven and accuse believers. In verse 9, he's called the dragon and that serpent of old. This is significant. We have a Genesis and Revelation reference here to Satan. Satan, uh, or dragon in describing Satan, is only found in the book of Revelation. Now, the word dragon is found in other places in the Bible, um, describing people who are allowing themselves to be used by Satan. But of himself, it's just used in the book of Revelation. And serpent of old is a reference to Satan in the Garden of Eden and the the temptation and and the eating of the fruit of the tree from Adam and Eve. That is a reference to Genesis. And so right there in verse 9, we have have this, uh, this reference to Satan from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's in verse number 10. It says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ has come. And they go on there. The saints rejoice. And they shout with joy because Satan has been cast out of heaven. And they realize it won't be long now until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It won't be long until Satan is locked up for a thousand years in the bottomless pit, the abyss, and then eventually cast into the lake of fire. So there's great rejoicing in heaven happening at this point. In verse number 11, it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives till the death. We have here in verse 11 the believer's defense to the accusations and attacks of Satan. Saints on earth and heaven both overcome Satan in the same way, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by their willingness to die for their faith. So, how do we overcome Satan in our lives? How do we overcome him in our lives? You know, I'd wrap all that verse up in a nutshell and I'd say this, by everything Christ has done for us already. By what He's already done. Aren't you glad you don't have to do something new or figure something difficult out? It's already been done by Christ for us. So how do we overcome Satan's attacks? There's there's a few points in your notes that we can look at that are very practical this morning. The first one is what Christ has done on the cross. Verse 11 said, by the blood of the Lamb. So what Christ has done on the cross... It has cleansed us from all sins and shields us from the attacks of Satan. You know, what, what, what Jesus has already done and the, the attacks of Satan come along and you get an opportunity to serve and, and you think, ah, I can't do that, I can't be a part of the church like that because uh, something happened in my past and I know God wouldn't want me because you know, I don't feel worthy enough. Or God impresses upon your heart to do a certain thing or, or to to lead your family in a certain way or to step up for Him and you go, oh, I can't do that. Satan, Satan uh, speaks to you and accuses you and says you cannot do that. You're not good enough for that. So when those ta- attacks come along, how do we defend ourselves? Well, what Christ has done on the cross already. What He has done. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 reminds us that as believers, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So when you, when you get uh, condemned, when you get accused, when Satan tries to, to move you in a direction, you say, you know, I could not do this for God. I, I, I'm not going to listen to God because I'm feeling like uh, my past or my sinfulness in the present. I could not do this thing for God. And he accuses you. Listen, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. That Greek word for no condemnation means no condemnation. None. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus. That's an awesome promise. Secondly, we overcome Him by what Christ has done in our hearts. That's number two. What Christ has done in our hearts. Verse 11 says, By the word of their testimony. So by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, as a result of trusting Christ, we have a testimony that we can share with others. We can talk about not being ashamed of the gospel all we want, but as your, your testimony should show that and will as a believer by doing something like being publicly baptized and testifying that, hey, I have trusted Christ. I'm on His side here. So our testimony... And then we overcome Him thirdly by what Christ has done in our lives. And what He's done in our lives. Verse 11 said that they did not love their lives to the death. You know, it's Christ who empowers us to live the Christian faith. And the likelihood of any of us laying down our lives for our faith, is it's unlikely. You know, it... it it's not impossible, but as it stands right now, it's not very likely. But, you know, if we are going to really follow Jesus, Scripture tells us to deny ourselves and to die to ourselves. So in a spiritual sense, when we follow Jesus and we do die to ourselves, if, we, if we're truly allowing Christ to be our Lord and Savior, we die to ourselves and we say, you know what? You're my Lord and Master, God. Your ways, not my ways. Whatever you have for my life, God, that is denying ourselves. That is dying to ourselves and living for Him. And all that we read there in verse 7 through 11 brings two reactions. Look at verse 12 there. It says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Two reactions here. First one is a shout of joy in heaven. A shout of joy here because Satan is now cast down. He doesn't even have permission anymore to, uh, to access he- heaven and stand before God and accuse believers. So Satan uh, is, is kicked out. There's a shout of joy because he's cast down. And then, Satan's wrath is at full rage now because of this. There's this woe on earth, and that's the second one. There is a woe. That's the other reaction on earth because Satan is now cast down there. And Satan's wrath is at full rage, and he no longer is granted that access into heaven, so he takes all of that pent-up wrath, and he takes it out on the inhabitants of the earth, and boy, we are going to get into that over the next few weeks. So at this point, everyone is on two sides. Everyone is on two sides. I mean, heaven, Satan can't even access it anymore. Everybody's with God there. Believers are there. 
And you've got earth going through Satan's full-on wrath. There's just two sides that can be clearly seen at this point in the tribulation. But you know what? That's true today as well. Did you know that you're on one of two sides? You're on one of two sides. Which side are you on this morning? You're on a side. You can't be sideless in this. You can't be, you go like, yeah, I'm going to be like Switzerland. I'm really not, you know, taking sides in this. And, you know, uh, or, you know, Barry, gosh, don't be a hater. I mean, can't we all just get along and, you know, be on a side? No, you can't be sideless in this. You cannot be. And you are on one side or the other. You are on God's side or you are on the enemy's side in life. That's, that's all there is to it. You know what? You may not be, even be aware that you're on an enemy's side, on Satan's side in some things, but recognize you're on one side or the other, and I hope you will determine in your heart this morning which side you are on in this. So we have seen Satan's fall, Satan's war, and him being cast out permanently, and that brings us to John's third uh, section in this vision that he has in heaven, and that is Satan's persecution. Satan's persecution. And this is found in verses 13 through 17. It says this in verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, I mean, this has just happened in the previous verse, he persecuted the woman who represents who? Israel. Who gave birth to the male child. This child is Jesus. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. That time, times, and half a time is Bible verbiage for three and a half years if you're taking notes. Verse 15 says, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Still going after Israel. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan's persecution. Uh, This is a part of that history of hatred right here because we see hate uh, we see the hatred of satan grow towards god and god's people and this persecution of god's people here satan knew that god and satan knew from from the beginning of time there that god would provide a savior to take away the sins of the world he also knew that that savior would come through god's people the jews and as you know and I know in Bible history and in secular history we know that Satan has hated God and persecuted God's people. You know even back in the Old Testament you have types of antichrists um like like Pharaoh who Satan used and a man named Haman in the book of Esther Satan using certain people and there are many others to wipe out the Jewish people to hurt the Jewish people. And you know I've already mentioned uh, Satan's attempt when Christ was born, King Herod, you know, trying uh, using King Herod to try to wipe out all the all the the male children and get the Christ child and stop uh, redemption. And for the past two thousand years, Satan has tried to continue to persecute and annihilate the Jewish people through other types of antichrists, ones you'd recognize like Stalin and Hitler. 
And at the end of verse 12, we were told back there in that last section that Satan realizes his time is short. And he puts all his efforts now into a campaign to wipe out all the Jewish people. Then we hit verse 13 and he says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So he turns up the persecution. And if you thought um, anti-Semitism was bad, and that's, that's any prejudice or persecution against a Jewish people or groups or their, them as a nation, if you thought that was bad previously in like the days of Hitler, it'll be nothing to, co- be, to be compared with what is going to happen at the last three and a half years during the tribulation. Satan is really going to pour it on here. And it's in Zechariah chapter 13 in the Old Testament, which parallels what we're reading today. In fact, it really gives us more detail about what's going to happen. But it's in that passage that Zechariah writes how before the Jews get to safety, they flee to the wilderness, which we've talked about being Petra, two-thirds of those who have rejected Christ as Savior will be killed. And one-third will survive. And those are the Jews who have then, they they have got it, they have placed their faith in Christ. So two-thirds will die despite the evangelism efforts of the 144,000 that we read about back in chapter 6 that will go around being witnesses. And the one-third will be protected because they have placed their faith in God. So that's all happening Uh, during this time. Verse 14 of chapter 12. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Remember, that's three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. So in verse 14, we read of God protecting Israel on the wings of a great eagle. Now, what's this all about? What does that mean? Who is this great eagle? Well, uh, Christians in America like to believe at this point that, oh, that's America in the end times. And we're, we're helping out here. We're helping out Israel. I doubt it. I don't believe this is a reference to America. And that's because in other places in the Bible, you have God delivered Israel from Egypt on eagles' wings, the Bible says. It also says that uh, on Israel's return from the Babylonian captivity, that uh, it was like mounting up with wings as eagles. So the description throughout uh, the Bible of the wings of an eagle is used several times, and it is always in reference to God's personal protection of His people. That's what that means. God will protect His people, not America. And if it's Petra where they're going to, and I think that's a good chance, uh, the one-third surviving will find plenty of room to go there and find protection. And God will give that protection. Uh, verse 13, or I'm sorry, verse 14 uh, goes on to say that, uh, that she'll be nourished for a time there and for three and a half years. Will be nourished. And it's the same word there used back up in verse 6 for feed. God has fed His people before, hasn't He? You remember from the Old Testament, there was a time when the children of Israel were, were out wandering and uh, they needed food and God gave them something to eat called manna, which came down from heaven. God 
provided and gave that to them and fed them with it. God allowed, the, the Bible tells us, for the quail to fly low through their camps so that they could knock them down easily and have fresh meat. God brought water out of a rock at times. It was God that commanded the ravens to, to fly and to gather food and to bring that food to the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament when he was out in the wilderness and needed food. Listen, God can do it. God will supernaturally feed and protect the surviving Jews for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. It, it will be easy for him. He has done it before. He will provide for them and feed them and nourish them. Verse 15 says, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. So Israel now, has they have found some protection and safety. The serpent spews water out like a flood. I think the key word in verse 15, and you might circle it there, is like a flood, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Key word there being like, probably an army, you know, a, a military attack. We know, and, and we'll get into next week, how the Antichrist is a military man and over the military and has control over that. And so this, this flood, perhaps a military attack, uh, attempting to rout out the remaining surviving Jews, whatever this attack is, it will be swallowed up by the earth. Verse, verse 16 said there that the earth helped the woman or helped Israel and the earth opens its mouth up and swallows up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And so we have some more protection there. And again, God has done this before in the Old Testament where the ground was opened up and God's enemies or, or rebels were swallowed up by the ground. We've, we've read that a few times in the Old Testament. Verse 17 it goes on and mentions here that the dragon went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Okay? And you might just underline or circle, if you do that in your Bible, the rest of her offspring. This is where Satan goes after not only any uh, Jews that are Christians, but also anyone who has placed their faith in Christ during this time. Since the rapture, there will be people who place their faith in Christ. They become believers. And it, Paul writes in the New Testament, and this is, this is a beautiful picture, and this verse makes clear sense here. Paul writes that as Christians, we today are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. It's like we're Jews too because we have placed our faith in Christ. So we're the spiritual descendants of Abraham, the father of the Jews. And so as we, we read here that uh, about people who have trusted, their Christ, trusted Christ during this time, these, these last times here, and they will be a target of Satan. And listen, folks, next week we'll see it take place in chapter number 13. We'll see uh, him pour out wrath. On Christians, You know, oftentimes that's what we think of when we think of the end times. We think of, oh, there's going to be some Christians and, man, Satan's really going to be after them. Well, lots of things have happened in the end times. In fact, we're now in the last half of the tribulation period, and this finally starts to take place. Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, there were some special nights at our church where they showed uh, some movies about the end times. Now, this is way back before the uh, 
left behind series books or movies, but they showed these movies. You know, this is like early 80s, and they had these old uh, old movies that, you know, you'd put on the reels about the end times. I think one was called The Distant Thunder, and all these people would come to Christ during the end times. They're running around in bell bottoms, and they were like, ah, don't get the mark, and, and they, all this stuff was happening, kind of gave you a picture of, you know, what could take place. I remember that. Uh, I still get counseling about that today. I was scarred. <laughs> But uh, they, and they were really, you know, kind of cheesy movies. But uh, we'd watch them, and it was, it was talking about that last half of the tribulation period. So, um, so Satan pours out now his wrath on remaining Jews and turns it on the Christians during this time, during this last part of the tribulation. And like I said, we'll see that happen and play out over the next couple of weeks. So we've read today about some sweeping time frames you know uh, satan's fall satan's war satan's persecution of israel and god's people you know what this tells me today in march 2011 besides the insights that we have gained from scripture of course god is in control god is in control and you might say, well, what, how, how is God in control in, in Revelation chapter 12? I mean, how do we see that? Well, throughout history, God and, uh, and God's people have had this hatred towards them from Satan. Satan has hated them. Satan has tried to stop God. Satan has tried to thwart God's plans for us. But it is obvious even in chapter 12 here, that God is in control and that Satan isn't even allowed to do anything without God's permission. And he's, he is in control. We would do well to remember that today. No matter what happens, God is in control. And although in chapter 12 some gave their lives, God is in control no matter what. We try to be in such control of our lives, don't we? And things come along with our family, and we try to control it. And things come along with our job, and we try to control it. Or we lose our job for a period of time, and we try, we try to control what is going on in our lives. And we so want control. And, man, my sister and my family over here isn't acting right, and I want to control her. And, and, you know, we try to control all of these things. And we would do well most of the time to let go and let God give it to Him and go, God, I have learned through all of these things, especially in the end times, especially when things are dark and things look like, you know, God's side is not winning, that yes, God, You are in control of it all. During all of this that we've read, just a reminder, we as believers are in heaven. We're in heaven. Don't forget that, folks. Uh, the remaining Jews, remember, they're safe, you know, probably in Petra. They're under God's protection during that last half of the tribulation, the great tribulation. And not long after this, God will come and establish His kingdom once and for all on this earth, and everything will be made new. Folks, God protects His people. This snapshot of history reminds us of that. 
reminds us of the fact in Scripture in the verse that says, Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. The question this morning is, is He in you? Is He in you? Have you ever received Him as Savior? Have you got on that side, God's side? If you have not, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that now. Would you bow your heads?